Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm your host for the day, Dr. Patil Armenian. Our usual host, Dr. Danielle Campaign, will be back in a couple of weeks. And with us, we have our amazing co-host, Dr. Sajan Bakta. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about preeclampsia and eclampsia. So we're going to start off today with a case that is kind of just like a generic representation of this topic, but you get a call out for a 26-year-old female with seizure. When you arrive, she's having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Per family, it has been going on for about 10 minutes. You notice a gravid uterus and ask, is she pregnant? Family says yes. As a matter of fact, she's about eight months along. Her blood pressure is 200 over 120 millimeters of mercury. So what are we going to do here with this case? There's a lot of options. The first is give midazolam as per your local seizure protocol. Give magnesium as your protocol. Transport quickly. Let your hospital know what you're bringing them. I mean, really, it's all of these at the end of the day. And that's what we're going to talk about. So today we're going to talk about two of the most concerning hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, preeclampsia and eclampsia. Now, there's this general term, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, which has a few things under its umbrella that include chronic hypertension, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, preeclampsia with severe features, and eclampsia. It's really helpful to think of them all together on a spectrum of less to most severe because they're all related to high blood pressure, and it just shows you that high blood pressure matters and is really important, especially in pregnancy. 7% of all maternal deaths are thought to be due to a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy, and most of these are going to be preeclampsia and eclampsia. That being said, the general rate of preeclampsia and eclampsia is very low, but it's important to recognize them because they have huge short and long-term implications. Short-term meaning on the immediate health of the pregnant patient and fetus, and long-term in that the mother may actually have long-term health effects well after childbirth. So let's quickly define the terms in a very general way. Preeclampsia is hypertension plus protein in the urine. Eclampsia is preeclampsia plus the presence of seizures. They are both life-threatening for both mother and fetus. And I think it's important to remember that a patient can have hypertension even before they become pregnant And that is the term chronic hypertension, when you have a high blood pressure before 20 weeks of gestational age, and that's treated a little bit differently. Again, we're very focused on the the numbers, um, but typically that does not come with preeclampsia or eclampsia, but they can be at higher risk for developing preeclampsia and eclampsia. Exactly. So definitely something to watch out for. So Sajan, why don't you walk us through some of these definitions so we know exactly what we're talking about? Sure. So as I just mentioned, chronic hypertension is high blood pressure, and that is defined as a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 140, or a diastolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 90. Now, chronic hypertension is before 20 weeks gestation. When we start to get into the gestational hypertensive disorders, these are diagnosed after 20 weeks of gestation. If the patient has no pre-existing history of high blood pressure, but after 20 weeks, they start to get high blood pressure. And that's when we start to come into these definitions. 
So the term gestational hypertension is, again, blood pressure greater than or equal to 140 over 90, at least more than four hours apart after 20 weeks of gestation. If they don't have any abnormal labs and they have no signs or symptoms, that's called gestational hypertension. Then we have preeclampsia without severe features. This is when they have high blood pressure, but they also have proteinuria. And that's at least 300 milligrams of protein in the urine in 24 hours, or a protein-creatinine ratio of greater than or equal to 0.3. Usually do not have any symptoms at this point, and so that is preeclampsia without severe features. Preeclampsia with severe features is that same blood pressure cutoff with symptoms, and those symptoms can be intractable headaches, persistent vision changes, severe right upper quadrant pain, or pulmonary edema, or the patient can have blood pressure that's even higher than those numbers we talked about earlier. They can have a blood pressure greater than or equal to 160 over 110. Again, that's taken twice, at least four hours apart after 20 weeks gestation. Their laboratory studies can include thrombocytopenia, which is a low platelet count, transaminitis, which is elevation in your liver enzymes, and or acute kidney injury, which is doubling of the patient's baseline creatinine, or greater than 1.1. That's the spectrum of preeclampsia. You can also have something called HELP syndrome, which is an acronym standing for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. This is when your blood pressure is high, again, over 140 over 90, and you have laboratory findings to suggest low platelets, high liver enzymes, and hemolysis, which is breakdown of red blood cells. This can lead to several other laboratory changes, and the symptoms can be variable. And then the most severe of these is eclampsia. So this is when your blood pressure is high, you have several laboratory abnormalities, and you develop seizures. So again, I think it's helpful to think about these things on a spectrum from gestational hypertension, which is blood pressure, without laboratory abnormalities or symptoms, all the way to eclampsia, which can have all sorts of laboratory abnormalities and cause seizures. And I will add that for HELP syndrome, about 15% of them actually don't even have high blood pressure. They just develop everything else. So that's one of those things where it's kind of a little bit more of a difficult diagnosis to make. But I think that you know, really it's all about high blood pressure, what we're discussing today. Now, there are risk factors for developing preeclampsia, and it's really like, it's really a long list, but I think it's important to know these risk factors. So the first is if somebody has a history of preeclampsia. So that's going to predispose future pregnancies to preeclampsia. If it's a multi-fetal gestation, so if it's like a twin or triplet pregnancy, if the patient already has chronic hypertension to begin with, just like Sajan said, if there's pregestational diabetes, kidney disease, autoimmune disease such as lupus, and then as far as moderate risk factors, so these are ones that are not as strongly associated but still important to think about, are nulliparity, uh, so if this is their first pregnancy, obesity, a family history of preeclampsia, greater than 35 years of age, personal history of low birth weight or previous adverse pregnancy outcomes, more than 10 years between pregnancies. That one I didn't know until I did the research for this topic, and IVF or in vitro fertilization. 
Now, there's a couple of things that um, are typically listed as risk factors for preeclampsia and eclampsia, and these are black race and lower income. However, studies have shown that it's really that these groups traditionally have lower access to healthcare and basically just poor access to healthcare, and that's what predisposes them. So it's not their actual race specifically, but the socioeconomic status leading to worse prenatal care that might lead to the development of preeclampsia just because of, you know, not detecting hypertension quickly, not having good prenatal care. The pathophysiology of these hypertension disorders of pregnancy is not fully understood. And everybody at this point, all researchers think it's multifactorial. And a lot of reasons end up leading to placental dysfunction and immunologic changes resulting in poor uteroplacental perfusion. In preeclampsia, the cytotrophoblasts, which are the cells that become the placenta, don't have that invasive phenotype required to create robust anastomoses. In plain English, that means you just get decreased and shallow endovascular invasion of the arteries. So the placental arteries don't like dig as deep into the uterus and, and don't form as big as they should. And so this basically leads to abnormal blood vessels. These are narrow blood vessels, which lead to placental ischemia and ineffective oxygen transfer. In addition, the underlying mechanisms thought to contribute to vascular dysfunction in preeclampsia are very similar to those in cardiovascular and atherosclerotic diseases in the non-pregnant individuals. Now, these similarities may also help explain why preeclampsia is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease later in life. So the reason why it's also so important for us to talk about this and recognize it is because it's not just the mother and fetus right now that are at risk, but it's because of future risk. Just as a recap of what we know so far, abnormal placenta formation and burrowing in the uterine wall results in inappropriate spiral artery remodeling, and the resultant tissue hypoxia causes endothelial damage leading to hypertension. Meanwhile, at the same time, changes in the maternal immune system in patients with preeclampsia facilitate this low level of chronic inflammation, and that chronic inflammation perpetuates a cycle of endothelial damage. So why do we care? What can happen? I think it'll probably be easier to split this apart by body system. So I'll talk about the major systems in the body and kind of the adverse effects that we see. Sajan, do you want to lead us through this? Sure. Let's start with the cardiovascular system. Obviously, we are discussing severe hypertension that can contribute to cardiac dysfunction, and that can be associated with peripartum cardiomyopathy or heart failure. And it can also lead to future ischemic heart disease, which again, as Patil mentioned, these patients are at an elevated risk for it throughout the rest of their lives. So let's move on to the renal system. These disorders are the most common glomerular-based kidney disease worldwide. They are at increased risk of acute renal failure in pregnancy, and renal dysfunction may actually persist postpartum, and these patients are at increased risk of chronic kidney disease and end-stage renal disease later in life. In terms of the hematologic system, we mentioned some of the laboratory abnormalities that can come from this, but it can cause thrombocytopenia or low platelet counts, can cause hemolysis, 
And if you do see hemolysis with preeclampsia, it's associated with an increased risk of poorer outcomes, including kidney injury, need for blood transfusions, need for ICU admissions, complications like pulmonary edema, and also poor neonatal outcomes. In the hepatic system, microvesicular fat changes and periportal and sinusoidal fibrin deposits in the liver parenchyma can be reversible. Um, you can also have subcapsular hematomas in the liver, which can be really dangerous. With the nervous system, this is the big one, which are seizures. This is the definition of eclampsia. Eclampsia rates of delivery is about 0.5 to 1.5% in developing countries, but as low as 0.01 to 0.1% in developed countries. If you do develop eclampsia, you're at very high risk of DIC, or disseminated intravascular coagulation, acute renal failure, pulmonary edema, heart failure, cerebrovascular disease, and death. And it's not just seizures in eclampsia. The hypertension itself comes with an increased risk of stroke, and even years later, patients with hypertensive diseases of pregnancy have a twofold increased risk of stroke. And of course, we see complications with the fetus, lots of increased risk for the fetus as well. One third will develop fetal growth restriction, which leads to increased risk of stillbirth and neonatal death, and a sevenfold increased risk of intrauterine fetal death. There are also long-term risks associated. The infants and children develop complications later in life. It's less clear exactly how often this happens, um, but they may have higher blood pressures and elevated pulmonary artery pressures because of the changes that were occurring in utero. So when we're assessing patients with possible preeclampsia, they may present with hypertension alone as well as being pregnant. Again, remember our definition really relies on 20 weeks or more gestational age. So this is going to be a third trimester complication. And they might have some other symptoms, headache, right upper quadrant pain, vision changes, uh, like we described earlier, lower extremity edema, difficulty breathing. The most common severe immediate complication is actually pulmonary edema in preeclampsia. Now, in the case of eclampsia, they will have just had a seizure or maybe start seizing while you're caring for them, while you're en route to your destination. Any third trimester pregnant patient who is having a seizure should be taken seriously and just assume it's eclampsia until proven otherwise, especially if you don't have a good history on the patient. Um, and then also, I mean, any woman who you are assessing for seizures, I would ask if they're pregnant because sometimes they... They might not offer up that information to you quickly. I've had that happen a lot where I'm assessing a patient and then 10 minutes later, they're like, oh, by the way, I'm 32 weeks pregnant. And you're like, okay, could you lead with that headline, please? Um, because that will change how we assess them. So always ask about pregnancy in a seizing woman of childbearing age. Okay. And then in your assessment, also just make sure that you're checking a blood pressure, and if your blood pressure seems ridiculously high for a young woman, repeat it again. And if it's still high, take that number seriously and report it. So in our system, I was looking up both the protocol for seizure itself, but also looking at our drug box. And the magnesium sulfate medication protocol mentions eclampsia, otherwise known as seizures plus preeclampsia. 
If they're in late pregnancy with hypertension, you can also use midazolam to stop the seizure prior to giving magnesium. So in the case we were talking about at the start of this episode with the young pregnant woman who was having a seizure, your step would be first to give midazolam, second to give magnesium. Magnesium is very interesting because it's a smooth muscle dilator, so it will actually counteract the placental ischemia. That's the problem here. And just give mag. Um, The range until you get toxic with magnesium is very high, so it's actually a very safe and well-tolerated medication. Sajan, why don't you lead us through the seizure protocol, because this is really where eclampsia falls. And again, this is for our SEMSA system, and this will differ according to what system you're working in. Right. So as with any protocol, we're going to start with our ABCs. Again, with the seizing patient, it's very important to adequately position the airway, perform basic airway maneuvers, suction, if you need to insert a pharyngeal airway or an advanced airway if indicated. We're going to place the patient on high flow for status epilepticus, respiratory compromise, or active seizure, or low flow if you believe that seizure is over. We're going to monitor their cardiac rhythm and treat the rhythm if appropriate. Then we're moving on to our medications. Again, you don't need IV access for midazolam in our system, so you can give intranasal midazolam, which is 0.1 milligrams per kilogram with a maximum of four milligrams. You administer half in each nostril using the mucosal atomizer device. You can also give intramuscular midazolam, 0.1 milligrams per kilogram if no IV access. And then if you are able to get an IV, if the seizure continues, you can administer 0.05 milligrams per kilogram slow IV push over two minutes with a maximum of two milligrams. And you can repeat that once in 10 minutes. And so usually easy to remember the 0.1 milligram per kilogram dose for intranasal and intramuscular use, and then you would cut that in half for the IV dose. Of course, with any ultramental status and seizing patient, we're going to check an AccuCheck, and we're going to document the value on the PCR and the GCS at the time of the finger stick, and give dextrose if necessary, um, and give glucagon if necessary. Next in our protocol is magnesium sulfate, which is 5 grams in 250 milliliters, which should be given over 20 minutes. This is given after midazolam to stop the seizure, if latent pregnancy and hypertension, or if latent pregnancy with no prior history of seizure disorder. We treat them as if we are diagnosing them with eclampsia, even if we don't have a diagnosis. Um, if they're late in pregnancy with no prior history of seizures, we're going to go ahead and give them magnesium. And then we're going to transport, minimize on-scene time, stay at transport if the patient is unstable. And then we're going to contact the base hospital if you need additional doses of medications. I mean, this is one of those where if you have somebody who's in their in third trimester of pregnancy and they're having a seizure and you just gave magnesium, it's a definite call in as a stat patient to your the hospital you're transporting to so that everybody can get ready for this patient. And remember that this is mainly a placental pathology. And so sometimes if the patient and the fetus are not improving and we are running out of treatments, um, we 
can start these patients on a magnesium drip, um, but sometimes these patients just go to delivery. And so it's really important to transport them as soon as possible, notify the provider so they can have everything ready because this can turn into a life-threatening complication for the maternal side, but also from the fetus. Definitely. And I'm glad you mentioned that this is going to result in immediate delivery. I mean, that's the thing. If somebody has eclampsia, really the best way to stop the seizures is to deliver the baby. And so these will be stat C-sections in the hospital. It's a very, very big deal. And people act very quickly on these patients. All right, Sajan, why don't you um, tell us what your take-home point is? So remember, in all females of childbearing age, check a blood pressure. High blood pressures in pregnant patients are a big deal because it means preeclampsia and other severe complications. And then once you have uh, somebody in their third trimester of pregnancy and they have a seizure, just think about eclampsia until proven otherwise and uh, give MAG for all pregnant patients with seizure for possible eclampsia. And even if they look really pregnant to you and they don't know they're pregnant and they're seizing, sometimes they are, and just give MAG, that amount of MAG isn't going to hurt anybody. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.